Well, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. This is a podcast where we explore thoughts in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. Today, I have another special guest with me, Dr. James Arcadi. He got his BA, his BA at uh, Biola University, MDiv and THM at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, PhD, University of Bristol, where he did his PhD on a, an incarnational model of the Eucharist. And... Um, Dr. Akadi also did a postdoc research fellowship in the Analytic Theology Project at Fuller Theological Seminary, which will be the uh, subject of our conversation today, both analytic theology and uh, his, his version, his model of the Eucharist. Dr. Arcadi is also an ordained, he's also ordained in the Anglican Church in North America, and he serves at a parish in Wheaton, Illinois. He's been a professor here at TED since 2018. And uh, I've had the pleasure to work with him on numerous occasions. So, Dr. Arcadi, thank you for being here today. Hey, good, good to be here, Parker. Always good to chat with you. Thanks, man. Yeah, I got the uh, the Lord's Supper behind us there, but it's kind of blocked out by us. So it's like we're at the table enjoying the Lord's Supper right now. <laughs> good place to be. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I wanted to get into uh, something that is a specialty of yours and which um, also might be... Uh, something that pigeonholds you that I love mm. it because I, I love learning about this, but uh, analytic theology. And so we've mm. talked about analytic philosophy a couple times on my podcast already, but um, analytic theology is, is a new one for a lot of people. So what is analytic theology? Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a great question. And actually there's kind of been no small amount of trying to figure out just what uh, analytic theology is as it's a sort of recently named phenomenon in the, in the theological slash philosophical uh, world. Uh, the name itself only dates to 2008 or nine. I think it was when a yeah. volume came out from Oxford university press called analytic theology. Um, so I mean the, the basic idea kind of like the, the rough idea is that um, you know theology has kind of always been done in conversation with philosophy. Uh, you know, you look at the history of Christianity, and you look at Augustine and Neoplatonism, or uh, Thomas Aquinas and Aristotelianism, or or what have you. And and, and yeah, theology's always got a kind of a philosophical dialogue partner. Uh, it just seems though that that uh, recently, in the last hundred years or so. Um, or previously in the last century, one of the dialogue partners was not analytic philosophy. And um, maybe uh, through some various features we can talk about historically or what, what have you, there, there's been a bit of an effort to bring analytic philosophy into that dialogue with theology. And, uh, and, and so that's where you get the, the analytic in analytic theology, theology done in conversation with or uh, using the tools and methods or sensibilities of, of analytic philosophy. Yeah, that's really helpful. So um, we, on that note, are there fundamental fundamental theoretical commitments that we could point to, to say this is kind of what characterizes analytic uh, theology from like philosophy, analytic philosophy of religion or something? I, I know there's some interplay. There's a lot of interplay there, but is there something that, that makes analytic theology different than analytic uh, philosophy of religion? 
Yeah, great question. And it kind of depends on who you ask and what and what their agenda uh, might be. Sure. Um, I take a little bit more of kind of like a, a broader or maybe even kind of like more of a deflationary understanding of analytic theology, where it's simply just, as I said, kind of theology done in conversation with analytic uh, philosophy uh, or using even just using the kind of tools and sensibilities of analytic philosophy. But that means I, I think that you can do what in one description or on, from one angle would just be analytic philosophy of religion. And I'd be happy calling that, you know, analytic theology. Okay. Um, uh, on the other hand, you know, you might have something that is not uh, under the purview of, say, natural theology or uses scripture or uses the tradition or uses these standard um, systematic theological sources in order to do theology. But it's bringing to bear on that analytic philosophical ideas or categories and like. And so I would think that can be considered analytic theology um, as well. So I mean, it kind of gets to this intersection of philosophy and theology, which that is kind of like a tricky thing to navigate yeah. as well. And maybe you talked about that uh, already. Sometimes knowing where the line between theology and philosophy is, is, is kind of hard to hard to pin down. And so likewise, that same difficulty, that same sort of fuzziness applies to this particular area. Yeah, definitely. And that makes sense. Um, that makes a lot of sense. So you you mentioned a, a, a foundational book in uh, Oliver Crisp and, and Mike Ray. Yeah. Um, and then uh, Tom McCall, after that, uh, former professor here at TEDS, he yeah. uh, published an invitation to analytic theology. So that's those kind of guys seem to me, they, they seem like the second generation mm. uh, type type guys who are theologians. Uh, Mike Ray might be, you know, philosophy of religion guy. Well, yeah, he's a philosopher. He teaches at a philosophy department. Yeah, mm -hmm. but then so now we got some theologians kind of kind of carrying the ball forward. But who are some of the the founding uh, thinkers that that have influenced the movement prior to that that next generation who's named it? Yeah, that, that, that's great. And I think that kind of um, generational, you know, moniker is, is a helpful way of, of thinking about that. Because, I learned that from you in your class. So. <laughs> is that right? Well, then no wonder it's helpful. <laughs> because um, uh, in some sense, to, to, to point to anyone or any instances of analytic theology prior to the naming is, is, is literally anachronistic. So, yeah. you, you know, you've got to say, well, the kind of stuff that was being done by these people and at that time is the kind of thing that we now sort of lump into the analytic theology bucket, so to speak. Yeah. So, I mean, really, it, it's some standard folks that you might think of in analytic philosophy religion, like Alvin Plantinga, Nicholas Wolterstorff, William Alston, Thomas Morris, um, uh, uh, individuals who were at the kind of forefront of what we might call kind of a renaissance within yeah. Christian philosophy um, in the 1960s, 70s, and then on into the early 80s. Think about the uh, the founding of the Society of Christian Philosophers, which I think was like late 70s or so, mid to late 70s. Okay. Mm -hmm. And that kind of like uh, was a, I don't know, what was a, was a clear demarcation of Christianity, of, of theism being taken seriously within standard philosophical, um, um, you know, scenes or, or venues, what have you. And so folks, like I mentioned there, were what we might call now, you know, analytic theologians. When, um, you know, when, when Plantinga is talking about um, religious belief and, and faith and the nature of faith, or when um, Alston is talking about um, predicating things of God, or Thomas Morris is on the, or the, uh, the logic of God incarnate, that was early 1980s. Um, using analytic philosophical tools to talk about the incarnation, the, the logical coherence of the incarnation. Um, yeah, that, that seemed to me to be 
uh, first generation analytic yeah. theology. Um, yeah. Yeah. Are you putting, is, is Basil Mitchell in there and Swinburne or those kind of guys are, do they fit or not? Yeah. Quite? Yeah. So that's, that's an interesting distinction. You, interesting you bring those, those uh, Basil Mitchell up there. So um, William Abraham, who uh, was at Southern Methodist now at Baylor um, has, uh, has, has articulated kind of an early narrative in, you know, the seeds of the roots of analytic theology. And he actually um, describes this as the, the school of St. Alvin and the school of St. Basil, uh, which is a nice way of putting it. So the school of St. Alvin is, are, are those kind of associated with um, the Center for Philosophy of Religion in Notre Dame and, um, and kind of those who are in the, you know, Alvinian stream, to yeah. put it that way. But also at, at Oxford and, and Basil Mitchell's work, you could also sort of see as being um, an early, I don't know, Similar seed, I don't know if you would say there was cross-pollination, but uh, a similar strand of the same sort of sensibilities. And of course, Billy Abraham was uh, studied at Oxford under, I'm pretty sure it was under Mitchell. Yeah. Uh, so he's uh, in some ways a part of that stream, although he's also um, held a couple fellowships at Notre Dame at times. So he, maybe he kind of is a bridge builder from that, from that early yeah. kind of like, you know, maybe fertile area of theology and philosophy, or analytic um, philosophy and theology being done in conversation. And Swinburne, I almost take though to be, um, I don't, it's, it, you could kind of call him sort of like in the Saint, the school of St. Basil or Basel sort of stream, because he was at Oxford as well, holding the um, Nolith chair at, at Oriel. Um, but in another way, he was kind of, kind of, he's kind of had his own research program and he's kind of done his own thing. Yeah. And in some ways it's kind of like inaugurated kind of his own kind of Swinburnian approach to the intersection of philosophy and, and theology. Um, but, uh, but, but again, in this kind of deflationary sense, I might say, yeah, sure. Swinburne's work totally gets in on the table there of, of analytic theology. Okay. Yeah, no, that's helpful. I, I only know, of, I know of Basil Mitchell um, from Jerry Root, who, who did his PhD under him and then kind of got oh, into cool. that and, and realized that he was like the, the forefather of the uh, cumulative case style mm. of apologetics and inference of the That's best right. explanation and hmm. yeah it's all these kind of these kind of guys who have done so much spade work uh setting up the 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 whole camp for analytic theology to yeah. kind of take place and and i i definitely would point most people i think would probably point to to planning a kind of making it okay to do theology again uh in in philosophy being okay mm. to be a christian philosopher and then yeah. from there, being able to work on Christian doctrines from this analytic perspective. And now we have, you know, guys like you who, who specialize in this, though. I, I, I don't want to pigeonhole you because I know you can do more than just that. But, um, but I mean, if I might, on the point, it's kind of raise a question about like, is there such thing as an analytic theologian? Um, you yeah. know, because I, I, I sort of like don't think of myself as an analytic theologian. Right. I just think of myself as a systematic theologian, which is just, you know, a, a term for a broad approach to doing um, theology. And so I get to not pigeonhole myself by, t by taking yeah. on on that label. Um, and so I don't feel personally like uh, like everything that I write or say has to be done in conversation with analytic philosophy or everything has to be, you know, an instance of analytic theology. I think some things that I've written, I don't know. I don't know if you would call that even analytic theology. And I, I think it's kind of fine because for me, it's more about the kind of the utility or the, the helpfulness that these philosophical tools or conversations bring to the theological task. Um, and so if it's not helpful or not needed in a certain instance, I don't feel like I have to bring it in. 
That's so helpful. Yeah, I, I, a lot of us, especially, you know, I'm, I'm a master student and we like to take shortcuts. We like to put people in little categories. We say, okay, if I need to go to analytic theology, that's the guy. But if I need more continental, maybe I'll v- read a, a Van Hooser. And it's it's fun when you guys don't fit in those boxes because you see Van Hooser, you know, pulling from William uh, Alston. When it's like, mm. well, he's not continental. You're not supposed to, you know, draw from that guy. Or yeah. um, um, seeing some of your language where you're using picturesque stuff here and there. And it's mm. like, well, that's not very analytic of you. And mm. I, I, I think that that's even helpful in understanding what this movement is and saying it's not a, uh, it doesn't have to be this camp where this mm. is what we do. And if you want to be one of the cool kids, you have to use logic and propositions. And if you don't do that, you don't, you're not part of the club. Instead, it's a, it's a bunch of tools. And this is our conversation partner because we're in this part of history. Yeah. 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 Right. I mean, I don't, I don't uh, like to see it as a, uh, yeah, a club or a camp or a you're in or you're out sort of thing, but it's more like, yeah, like, like tools, like you put it. And I think even uh, Dr. Van Hooser and I've chatted about this and I think he's even sort of sees now analytic theology as like, Hey, it's a tool in the toolbox. And you know, the theologian needs a lot of tools. <laughs> I need yeah. a lot of help when I'm trying to think about the infinite mysteries of the faith. Um, and so if there's some philosophy that can be helpful to me, like I, I want to make use of that. Yeah. So you, you studied in your undergrad, I think you did classics and you, did you do a minor in philosophy? Is that right? Yeah. So I, uh, so I was in the great books program at Biola, the Tory honors, uh, Institute when I was there now, Tory honors college. Um, and so that's a great books based program where you do sort of classical, um, education sort of a thing. Uh, and then I was a humanities major, which just meant that I was trying to be undecided as long as possible. <laughs> and so at Biola, humanities was English, history, and philosophy combination. And then you pick one area to emphasize in. And I emphasized in philosophy uh, and had a biblical studies minor um, as well. Uh, so that was a bit of my kind of undergraduate experience. Yeah. So I bring that up to ask, um, and we've talked about this before, but I thought it'd be interesting to bring up on the podcast. Why, why theology instead of philosophy? As someone who can do both, why'd you pick theology? Yeah, um, I mean, for me in my own sort of personal, I don't know, personal journey, uh, I really liked philosophy, um, really liked thinking about these like these big questions. Um, And I guess in a sense, I sort of thought that I really just wanted to get uh, as much data as I could Mm. on the table that I could interact with to to try to answer like the big questions and philosophy kind of, if you're, if you're doing sort of pure philosophy in in some sense, you know, you're really only kind of limited to what we might call natural revelation. You know, you're inter you're, you're, you're limited to what is revealed in, in reason as well as in creation. And I just kind of thought, well, there's, there's a whole other domain that could be helpful too. That is special revelation and God's communication of himself in, in Jesus Christ and through the Holy Spirit uh, to us and in scripture and the like. And so I just sort of thought if I want to, if I want to get the whole picture, <laughs> um, I want to get all the data that I can. Yeah. And that, that means, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a big and impossible task. <laughs> Being a theologian is kind of an impossible thing because you've got to deal with all of reality. Um, <laughs> so, you know, whatever we, we make what little advances we can trying to work with uh you know the, the 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 totalizing data set that includes well includes the infinite god <laughs> yeah okay so so then you go into uh, theology and you get your phd um at bristol and then how do you was was that phd um was that involved in analytic theology because right after that or or eventually after that you go to postdoc research 
with Oliver Crisp, you know, the guy who was one of the founding members of analytic theology. So how did you get involved in, in the movement? Yeah, good, good question. It's, I mean, it's a little bit haphazard, I suppose. So, um, you know, when I, when I was there at Biola, uh, doing that philosophy emphasis there, the, 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 the philosophy of Biola was certainly, uh, of the analytic variety. So this Mm -hmm. was early on the, uh, you know, uh, at the, the, the seminary Talbot at Biola, they have a master's program in philosophy of religion. And that was just getting started when I was an undergrad. Maybe it just got started right before I got there. And yeah, J.P. Moreland was teaching there. William Lane Craig is teaching in there um, uh, and, and, and others as well. And uh, it was, you know, a heavily kind of analytic department in the in the seminary as well as in the undergrad as well. A number of my professors had PhDs from Notre Dame uh, mm-hmm. with Neil Stanley Plantiga or um, uh, or USC studying with Dallas Willard. That was kind of like, the, you know, the sort of coaching tree you might see <laughs> playing out there um, at, uh, at Viola. So I kind of, that was just sort of like the philosophy. And, but I read classics and so I read plenty of other things as well, but that was just kind of like the, the style, I suppose, of philosophical inquiry that I was, um, you know, kind of immersed in. And then when I was doing my master's degrees um, at, at Gordon-Conwell, I did a fair amount of uh, looking at some medieval theology. Hmm. So when I was at Gordon-Conwell, I took three courses down at Boston College, uh, just, just down the road in, in Boston, in medieval theology, Thomas Aquinas and, and a couple other figures as well. Um, and that, that kind of like uh, scholastic sensibility really resonated with me in sort of seeing like the benefit of using philosophical tools to talk about properly theological you know, topics. Um, so, so I, you know, uh, and I kind of wanted to do that. So I, I wanted to like do theology. I want to talk mm. about theological ideas, but I'm, I remember thinking like, but I kind of want to do it like a philosopher mm-hmm. <laughs> or like, you know, in the style of a philosopher, but it's like, where do you go to do that sort of thing? So, you know, it was 2008, 2009 when I was looking at PhD programs and I came across Oliver Crisp, um, uh, mostly from his book, Divinity and Humanity, which was his Cambridge University Press um, book in the current issues and theology series. And I was like, oh, this is, yeah, this is theology, but it's theology in a kind of style that that's attractive to me. Mm. And and that was sort of what what tipped me off to, to working with him. And, you know, then we you know, had a conversation or, or, or a few conversations and, it, and, you know, it ended up working out to work with him. So in a sense, I think at that time, I was looking to do analytic theology without knowing it was analytic Uh theology. I didn't even know that book had been published. Again, it was 2009 that got published and I started my PhD in 2010. So, you know, I hadn't even, I didn't even have the book, you know, I didn't know there was a thing. So, um, so that was kind of how I got into interacting with Oliver, uh, Oliver Crisp, um, as well as kind of doing analytic theology, if that makes, that makes sense. Yeah, it totally does. And I'm glad you brought up the scholastics because I've heard, yeah. I've heard some people say that this is kind of a retrieval of uh, scholastic theology. And, and when we say scholastics, we mean, you know, Thomas Aquinas, the, the scholastic of scholastics himself, or um, even like Turretin, who was sure. like, a, a, some people say a reformed version of him, yeah. where they're asking these really clear questions and they're giving mm. really analytic uh, answers. And they're going mm. through, you know, someone said this, this, and this, uh, on the contrary, but I say this, right? And, and it's very clear. It's not... Um, as opposed to, I don't know, the more continental flowery language, which is more rich sometimes, but it doesn't always end in an answer. Uh, and, and because the, sometimes the process is the whole goal. Um, 
maybe that's not fair, but yeah. Well, I mean, I guess if, if we're just kind of talking about um, family resemblances or points of contact between contemporary analytic theology and scholastic theology, either in its medieval or um, Protestant versions, um, I think you see lots of things that are that are similar. Um, mm-hmm. You see an uh, an attention to argumentation. Um, there may be a certain style of argumentation, but it's a it's a, certainly an attention to that. Let's make arguments and let's you know shore up our premises and and you know raise potential defeaters for mm-hmm. our you know this is this is what Thomas's summa is is a whole bunch of defeaters for his own views, right? Uh, and his responses uh, to them. Um, there's an attention to, to definitions of terms, being being sure, certain that you're using a term, you know, uh, unitically across various domains. You're not equivocating on your terms, and you know you're having a proper definition, and you're going to like scrutinize that definition because if you got you know uh, faulty definitions, you're going to end up having you know a faulty edifice that you're you're uh, you're working with uh, as well, um, as well as I think an attention to distinctions. And I mean, if there's anything that scholastics and analytics are known for, it's making distinctions. And, you know, for me, when I see that, I think, well, that's just part of this kind of getting clear on things. Hmm. You know, you don't want to end up like dealing with a whole, I mean, theology is a mess because you've got, you've got everything. You get this very, you know, all of reality and it's infinite God. And it's a great big, you know, it's a great big mess. And sometimes you got to kind of get in there and separate things out a little bit and, and, and make some distinctions and say, okay, I'm just going to put this to one side for the time being and put this to one side for the time being. And I'm really going to drill down on this particular issue, knowing that's a bit artificial because everything is interrelated, but yeah. you, know, you can't talk about everything all the time. So making those distinctions is something that I think both analytics and scholastics have been, you know, have a, a certain penchant for. Yeah, that's really helpful. Um, in distinguishing again, a little bit more. Well, I, I thought of this this funny story that you told about Oliver Crisp, I believe, who um, he, he went over to Europe where it's more continental um, philosophy is the conversation partner. And and he just gave a, a theology symposium or talk or something. And someone comes up to him afterwards and, oh, it's great to hear from an analytic theologian. And he, he just goes, well, you know, what made it analytic? I was just giving a talk. And he said, well, you made an argument. Is that, is that my remember? Yeah, like you made an argument. Like it was, it was clear or something along, <laughs> along those lines. Yeah, yeah. And so, which is, clarity. I mean, yeah, it's interesting. I, I don't think it's an apocryphal story. I think I remember him telling me that. <laughs> anyway, the, the 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 point being is there is at times though you can sort of see distinctions between different uh, theological, um, I don't know, perspectives that ends up being more kind of rhetorical in nature or even stylistic in nature. Yeah. Um, and. From my, from my mind, that that's fine. We can have different styles and different approaches and, and what have you. And there might be a place for these different things uh, as well. Um, but it also just kind of illustrates a little bit some of the trickiness of trying to define analytic theology. Mm-hmm. If all it takes is just to be clear or make an argument, well, that's even more of a deflationary definition right. than, than I have. And in my mind, that may, may be too deflationary to like take into consideration some of the other features that one just wants in like, academic writing or academic reasoning. Yeah. So uh, another question was um, yeah. a lot of the guys uh, and, and ladies that do analytic theology seem to have come out of an evangelical tradition of some kind. Um, what One, have you seen that too, or is it much more broad than I, I know there are others, but it seems like the majority are evangelical. And then two, like what, what role does the Bible play in analytic theology? Does it have a specific role or, um, a, a certain commitment um, to inerrancy or anything like that, that that comes with analytic theology or is the movement too broad to kind of 
uh, hone in on that? Yeah, kind of two part question. Maybe on the on the first part, um, I, I would say w- what I've sort of seen um, among analytic theologians, and this is more kind of sociological than anything I think having to do with like the nature of analytic theology. Yeah. Although there might be some aspects that lend itself towards this, um, but are I might say more like just traditionalists. So you could take traditionalists in an evangelical direction, but also a Roman Catholic direction as well, or maybe point. even in an Eastern Orthodox direction. Think of Swinburne. He was an Anglican turned Eastern Orthodox. Yeah. Uh, or I think of first generation analytic theologian, Eleanor Stump, who's a Protestant turned Roman Catholic hmm. and, um, uh, and others as well. When I kind of think of people I know who do analytic theology, yeah, I see a fair amount of uh, committed Roman Catholics as well as, you know, evangelicals. Now, what's up with that? Well, I think in part that when you're when you have some of these more traditional sensibilities, like you're kind of you're you're concerned with truth. Hmm. You're concerned with like actually hitting reality in some sort of a way. And so the task of theology becomes trying to, you know, trying to match up what we say about God with actually God. Yeah. <laughs> you know, or with actually the way God has like devised things. Which if you're in a little bit more of like a I was gonna say traditional liberal, but liberal in a in a in a in a technical sense, like kind of you know from Schleiermacher on on forward. Maybe those who have embraced the kind of Kantian divide or what have you. There's a bit less of trying to match up what you say with reality, and more mm-hmm. so trying to construct reality. You know that that our our language and our practices somehow um, you know give reality to. The, the the deepest experiences that we have of mm. God or the infinite or the absolute dependence or, or or what have you there might be in some ways in which you need less um, you need less uh, rigorous tools in order to do that sort of a thing if, if that makes if that makes some sense mm-hmm. and so um, I, I think that perhaps that is kind of why um, there hasn't been a ton that I have seen of sort of like um, you know, mainstream uh, liberals, that is like those like Schleimacher or I don't know, Tillich or what, what have you, those in that, those kind of camps who are enamored of analytic theology. But now I think that uh, uh, in, in this kind of formal sense, and, and William Wood at Oxford has distinguished between the kind of a formal sense and a substantive sense, and I think that's a helpful uh, distinction to make there. There's nothing I think that precludes or would you know would 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 deny uh, entrance to the, the guild, <laughs> the club, um, <laughs> that, that you know a, a, a Talikian or um, a Schleimacherian or what have you could certainly do analytic theology if they're trying to utilize some of the tools of analytic philosophy in order to do the kind of theology that they want to do. So I, I don't think there's anything necessary about that that would that would. Uh, that would prevent that. Yeah. It just sort of seems, again, more like a observation that really hasn't happened a ton yet. But you know, the, the sky is the limit, I suppose, if someone wanted to do that. Sort well, of once thing. they see this podcast, then maybe they uh, will will get on board. You'll inspire them. <laughs> totally, actually. You know, Parker said a case in the uh, in the, the Talikian analytic theologians. <laughs> yeah, that's great. If I so on the. Um, uh, on, on the on the scripture kind of question because it yeah. doesn't maybe get to like you know either evangelical identity or Roman Catholic identity. There again, it kind of depends on if you're thinking more just sort of like formally, like structurally. Like, no, you could have. A, 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 I don't think there's any particular view on scripture or the use of scripture in theology that's required to do analytic theology. You yeah. could be an inerrantist. You could be an infallibilist. You could be some kind of like 
Jesus seminar revisionist, I suppose, <laughs> and, and, and still like, you know, uh, do analytic theology. But again, by kind of more sociological observation, it has seemed that more, I don't know, traditionalist inclined evangelicals, Roman Catholics, et cetera, have tended to be doing analytic theology. And so they bring with them these presuppositions on, you know, the nature and authority of scripture, for instance. Yeah, that's, uh, that's really helpful. Yeah. Um, so, so moving on then from yeah. uh, analytic theology to your own particular uh, work, uh, hmm. particularly on the, the Eucharist. Yeah. Does, does your work on the Eucharist fit neatly into this uh, project of analytic theology or is it kind of uh, some uh, transcending some, some boundaries here or um, yeah, because you had mentioned that you, Question. you were doing your work uh, before really the, the big boom here. Um, yeah. The big how, boom. How, does it, how does it, how does it fit into analytic theology if it does? Yeah. Um, so I, mean, I think in, in, um, in, in one sense, uh, how do I say this? Um, again, there's nothing about analytic theology that, that prevents you from addressing certain doctrines or certain ideas or what have you. So in that sense, sure, it, it totally offends. Right. Again, the observation kind of sense, what have most analytic theologians or kind of those in the early, you know, pre-naming analytic theology been doing? Well, I mean, it starts off kind of thinking about just like theism in general, divine attributes, the nature of omnipotence or foreknowledge and freedom kinds of issues, the, the sorts of things you kind of see are standard in analytic philosophy of religion. Yeah. Um, it, it moves then into issues of Trinity and incarnation. I think those two doctrines have seen um, maybe the most amount of publishing within analytic theology, quote unquote, yeah. analytic theology. And, and those are contra uh, complicated, uh, metaphysically laden doctrines too. So it makes sense that you know, and they're central Trinity incarnation. That's like the center of our, of our faith. Right. Yeah, so right. it Absolutely. makes sense that those would be popular ones for, for people to be um, working on. So in that sense, doing the Eucharist is kind of new. Cause I was kind of like pushing analytic theology to start looking at other doctrines, other areas that had been, you know, kind of uh, ignored. And I think we're seeing kind of um, some more of that, uh, especially as those of us who do analytic theology have more, a theological background and theological location yeah. um, than more of these standard doctrines that you might cover in your intro to systematic theology class are also getting addressed, not just those standard ones like Trinity and incarnation. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, in, in some ways, I didn't, I didn't choose the Eucharist in order to push that envelope of right. theology. It was more just kind of like, well, I'm, I'm interested in this topic and I can, you know, I want to bring these, these tools to talk about this topic. So I, I'm just going to do it, even if no one else had really been doing it. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. We, we've seen um, a lot of that, uh, like like Jordan Wessing, uh, a friend of yours, and he was here yeah. at TED, uh, working on love, mm -hmm. uh, the concept of love and divine yeah. love. And uh, it's pretty cool because, well, it's really cool, but it seems like it's spreading out. Uh, as you said, it started kind of on an apologetics bent, philosophy of religion bent. We're defending the faith, and it's sure. not rational. Yeah, we can be warranted in our belief. Um and then move to, to Trinity and incarnation, and especially Trinity, a lot of philosophers still, hey, it's not irrational, kind of apologetic bent. Then as the tools became more available, mm. it's like a lot of the theologians saying, well, hey, you know, the Eucharist is important. Hey, love is yeah. important. Hey, uh, justification is kind of important. You know, all these other things, mm -hmm. uh, not just about defending them from attacks, but getting clear on what we're talking about here is a, is a valuable goal. Yeah, yeah. 
I think that's so, right. I mean, there's been a little bit of work even recently on like on like liturgy, uh, hmm. which I think is, you know, that who would have thought analytic philosophers would be thinking <laughs> about liturgy, but Nicholas Wolterstorff has been yeah, publishing on that. Um, and Terence Cuneo, uh, philosopher of Vermont, uh, Josh Cockaine at St. Andrews has been publishing on that. And I think that's great. I mean, Cockaine was actually uh, edited a, 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 an edition of uh, Theologica, this sort of analytic theology-ish sort of journal on on ecclesiology, analytic approaches to ecclesiology. Wow. As far as I know, not much has been written on that prior to this um, that that uh, that special issue, which came out or I think earlier in the spring. And so, yeah, so kind of pushing out into these standard doctrinal loci um, with analytic the- uh, theological tools, and I, I think that's really exciting. Yeah, yeah, definitely, and I, I think you've been a part of that with your Eucharist work. So I wanted to to get a little bit more on the specifics of that. Um, we've talked about the extended mind thesis here on the podcast before, uh, and, and yeah, we asked. Uh, I, I asked and answered the question: Is my pocket journal a Horcrux? If you're familiar with uh, Harry a Potter horcrux? at all, I'm not a Potter man. Sorry. Okay, yeah, I'm, I'm not either. I just did it for the fans. Uh, huh. there, there's this thing where you know you like put part of your soul in this journal, and it's all this witchcraft craziness. But so, you know, going off the extended mind. You don't, you don't have a simple soul then, huh? Well, so I had to make some distinctions. This is a tangent. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's so good. It's so good. I love this. And I think I think that I first heard of the extended mind thesis in your class back in 2018, in your analytic theology class. It, it may have been before that, but I think it was. And I looked into it more. And it was actually a live question for me because I'm looking at, I got stacks and stacks of pocket journals where I write all my, my notes, yeah. my thoughts. And if I lost those part of my mind would be gone because I'm just not, you know, I have all these thoughts and they're all over the place. And so I think in a real sense, like my mind is in there, mm. but my soul is not. So that means I have to make a distinction between my mind uh. and my soul and my phenomenal yeah. consciousness, what I'm experiencing now. Cause you know, my soul is different than them. A soul is the substance that I am, but mm-hmm. I go to sleep and I'm not conscious and I don't disappear. My soul doesn't leave. So yeah. it's, it's crazy. It's really weird to say, yeah, my mind is, is larger than my soul or whatever, but you've used this extended mind thesis hmm. in your uh, doctrine of the Eucharist, or, you know, if yeah. good Baptists and non-denominational folks are listening, that's uh, the Lord's Supper, right? It's the, mm-hmm. your grape juice and your cracker there, but uh, <laughs> broader Christendom says Eucharist. Um, and I think that's a good word. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, on the uh, terminology, I, I use the word Eucharist just because it's, uh, it's got more, um, uh, reminiscent of Paul's language with it being a Thanksgiving meal yeah. and, and it ends up being a little more neutral too. like when you say Lord's Supper, you kind of mean baptistic environment. Totally. When you say like mass, you mean Roman Catholic. When you say yeah. sacrament at the altar, you mean Lutheran. So, you know, Eucharist can be a little bit more ecumenical. Oh, that's good. I never really thought of it that way because I came from that tradition. So Eucharist to me was like, you know, I'm almost starting to smell some incense and stuff, but uh, <laughs> yeah, no, that's great. I like using that, the ecumenical uh, language there. So, how, um, if we could talk about impanation, sure. is that, am I pronouncing that right? Yeah, impanation. Yeah. Impanation, extended mind thesis, how you go about kind of answering, the, you're, you're bridging this question of, of real presence. You know, some Christians mm. think this is literally the Lord's body and blood. Mm. Others are saying, we don't even drink wine. This is grape juice. And it's a, it's mm. a memorial. We're re- yeah. taking this and remembering him. And then I think of yours as kind of the the middle way. The uh, mm. idea is 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 that a fair characterization, or or just go ahead and explain. Well, yeah. it depends on the what what your extremes are. That it might be the middle between. So I mean, maybe 
thinking about that terminology might be a good way of going about that. So you, you use the word impanation, uh, which is a term that gets used in the tradition at time, which, which you, if you break that down, it's kind of a, it's a ripoff of incarnation. So when you, you know, incarnation is like to be enfleshed, mm-hmm. impanation, the pane, that's bread. It's like to be inbreded. Okay. Mm-hmm. So the, the idea is that uh, Christ somehow becomes, you know, inbreded in, in the bread. And you, you'd probably need, I think it's, Invination, like in wind too, <laughs> in order yeah, to like in order to, to, to fill it out. Yeah, um, yeah. But I think the basic idea, at least the idea that I was trying to pick up from the tradition, was 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 using the incarnation as um, um, a motif uh, or even kind of like an explanatory tool for the way in which Christ is present in the Eucharist. Mm-hmm. And so, if you think about uh, the incarnation, at least according to the traditional teaching. Jesus Christ is fully God and fully a human being, um, yet he's unified in, in, in one person. Um, so, so too, then, could I, do I think you could apply that to the Eucharist and say, well, that, that object there, that consecrated object is both bread and the body of Christ. Or mm. That stuff in the cup there is both wine and the blood of Christ. And we have kind of like a, a, a theological precedent in the incarnation for um, thinking about there being two things that are in one thing or two things that are in one place or kind of, you know, however you want to loosely term that. Um, and I mean, that's not my idea. I mean, and, and this sort of like theme of using incarnation to talk about the Eucharist goes way back into the patristics as well. And so, you know, lots of individuals in the, in the tradition have, have deployed that sort of like analogy or again, kind of explanatory motif. Yeah. My, my, uh, my effort was just to make that more specific, I guess, and to get more clear on what that actually looks like and entails. So that goes back before Bart for anyone listening who is, you know, hearing, well, Bart was the one to do that. And this is, it goes back further uh, looking to the, the incarnation to solve. I mean, like Justin Martyr, I think has like, a couple <laughs> things to say about that. So that's pretty darn, that's pretty early. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So, oh, so the extended yeah. mind thesis, you want to ask about that too. Yeah. So where does that come in? I mean, mm-hmm. um, so that's, this is where it's like, well, here's a, here's a contemporary philosophical tool that might be helpful to like bring to bear here. And no, I didn't come up with that, but actually kind of got tipped off to that um, by uh, an essay that Richard Cross wrote in uh, this uh, edited volume called The Metaphysics of the Incarnation. Richard Cross wrote an article in there, and also Anna Marmadoro, um, who edited that volume with Jonathan Hill, both used the uh, Extended Mind thesis to talk about the incarnation. So they were trying to say, hey, look at, uh, you know, maybe we could see the human nature of Christ as kind of like an extension of the mind of the second person of the Trinity. And can we kind of like, you know, pull this in, pull some of this stuff in from uh, Andy Clark and David Chalmers to, to, to do that sort of thing. And Cross's article, actually, he's, he's saying basically that, that Dun Scotus's view of the incarnation is already uh, making use of some similar kind of conceptual machinery mm. that gets picked up in the extended mind thesis uh, as well, having to do with the nature of unification being based on causal connection and, yeah. and what have you. So I saw those and I thought, well, that's, that's kind of cool. That, 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 that might work as the, as the incarnation, as an explication of the incarnation, maybe it will work too for the Eucharist. And so can I apply a similar sort of um, approach of utilizing philosophy of mind to talking about the the Eucharist, which itself I'm thinking is like tied into the incarnation. So it's sort of like, you know, incarnation with extended mind and then further on applying 
the uh, uh, extended mind to the Eucharist as well. Yeah, that's so awesome. And and some people might, um, they might be getting the sense that this is, you know, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. But when something so important to our faith uh, and something that, that plays out, well, every Sunday for a lot of churches, but once a, uh, once a quarter for some some good Baptist churches or whatever. Yeah. This is this is part of our life and practice, part of our faith and practice, um, and it's a really important thing to get clear on. And let's see yeah. how far we can go. Even though there's going to be some mystery, um, because there's a lot of mystery in theology, right? But um, how far can we go, and how can we appropriate some tools from current analytic philosophy in order to help us? Uh, yeah, in, not a Trojan horse, but uh, you know, plundering the Egyptians instead. Sure. Yeah. Well, and I mean, for me, it's like. This is just kind of what scripture and and the experience gives us, mm. you know, like, so I'm not making a natural theology argument to like Christ being located in the bread and wine. Yeah. I'm just looking at the Bible and Jesus says, this is my body. <laughs> you know, he yeah. takes a piece of bread and said, this is my body. And like, you know, I'm, I'm an Anglican minister. So like every Sunday I'm giving someone a piece of bread and I say, this is the body of Christ. And so the question is like, what does that mean? Right. Exactly. <laughs> you know, Jesus, what did you mean when you said, you know, this is my body in, in that sense? And I do some stuff with like language too and, and, and exegesis and say, well, it's not clear that that we should just immediately interpret that as this is like my body right. or this is a metaphor for my body or this is my body, but not really, which, you know, <laughs> some traditions tend to do. Yeah. So I kind of was like thinking, well, if we could just kind of stand with the, the majority opinion interpretation that this is my body should be understood in the level of first order discourse. Um, well then if there's a way to like metaphysically explain that, um, then, then we should go for that. And, and if there's a way of showing that's not incoherent or not illogical or not impossible, then that'd be the preferable way to do our exegesis. Yeah. And, and so that would put your position, uh, in a, in a realist, uh, category instead of uh, i'm not sure what else to say I, I i think you may have written the opposite word but deflationary or anti-realist i know it sounds harsh but someone who would hold to a more memorial uh understanding of the eucharist that it's it's like or it's uh it's a, it's a memory take this and eat in memory yeah um, i mean it, i think so i kind of like the, I mean, there's like a, there's a spectrum i, I yeah, think totally. a spectrum of eucharistic views that are kind of on offer in uh in the tradition uh, and on and on and on one side, you know, you might have those that try to understand this is my body in, in this sort of literal sense, or again on the Lord or first um, first order predication, and that's going to be Roman Catholic and Orthodox, Lutheran, some Anglicans as well. Mm -hmm. On the other end, you have like those for whom this is my body is clearly you know metaphor or you know analogy or some kind of figurative speech. And so the emphasis becomes on the latter predication or latter instruction to do this in remembrance of me. There you have your standard free church, non-denom, baptistic environment. And then in the middle, you know, this is where there's some kind of an association or some kind of a relationship between, you know, the elements or the service or the faith of the receiver and the body and blood of Christ or the Holy Spirit. Calvin falls in this category, Peter Martyr, Vimeli, Martin Bootser, these kind of 16th century reformers that then give rise to um, Presbyterian and Reformed and also some Anglican explications of, of what's going on with, with the Eucharist. So my view kind of falls in this, um, uh, you know, Lutheran-esque kind, of kind of an environment, you know, Anglican slash Lutheran sort of a perspective there. I distinguish it from the Roman Catholic view because the Roman Catholics say clearly that after the consecration, 
that thing there is no longer bread. Right. That stuff in the in the cup is no longer wine. It's only the body of Christ. The substance gotta, transforms. Yeah, right. They've got to do some stuff with the um, you know, with, with your metaphysics to get that to to work. I kind of agree with the Lutherans and say, why think that? <laughs> you know, like look, still looks like bread to me. And yeah. why think that that's just the appearances? Still tastes like wine to me. Why just think that's just some kind of empirical property? Um, mm. Likewise, Jesus was God and a human being. He didn't just like cease to be it. God when he was a human um, and he didn't just seemed to be a human, like he was fully human and fully uh, divine. So why not kind of just push that into the Eucharistic domain as well and say fully bread and fully the body of Christ. Yeah. And so um, if, if I'm remembering right, you distinguish two types of German uh, views on this. Does that ring a bell or? Yeah. So I kind of think that there is the, um, um, well, what sometimes gets termed in the literature and Lutherans don't like the term consubstantiation, yeah, right, uh, which is a which is a medieval scholastic term, which then was you know, sometimes gets applied to the Lutheran view uh, as well, and you know, and that that view I think holds that there is both bread and the body of Christ, um, but typically there isn't as much of a desire or emphasis on explaining the unity between those two things there, right. So to me, it sort of seems like you could have a unity as simple as co-location where they're not actually unified. They're just, you know, Both they're just there. occupying the same space. Yeah. Um, impanation theories, uh, I think, tend to, again, utilize the incarnation, try to give a more robust account of what the union is between the bread and the wine that makes it apt such that they are both present there. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. That's really helpful. Um, so one one thing that... I think about all the time, actually, from your class. So you hold um, your analytic theology course is a seminar class. And so you would hold readings for us and then you would kind of guide our conversation. And sometimes uh, me and Andy would would go at it and you'd have to back <laughs> us down. Other times you'd have to, you know, rile us up a little bit. But uh, one thing you were talking about, I believe in, in this conversation was when a child, uh, usually a boy, I think of myself, pokes his sister with like a pen. Yeah. And he's like, well, you know, I'm not poking you, right? It's the mm. pen that's poking you. But mm. because I'm the one holding this, it's an extension of my body. And so, like, literally, I am poking you. Um, I, I don't want, yeah. So how does that fit in with your model? Does that fit in with your model? Is, is yeah. Yeah, I know that that's good. And that's good. That's because that, that, um, that pushes the conversation of the extended mind thesis beyond just mind and this mm -hmm. gets into the whole sort of realm of what's sometimes called what do we call it enabling externalism i think mm -hmm. is the idea wherein these like enabling devices yeah. whatever they might be um allow uh, an agent to extend themselves beyond what they could do under you know previous circumstances or, or what have you yeah. so the extended mind thesis is about extending your mind onto an enabling device, like your memory onto your, your notebooks and, and that sort of a thing. But you could also think of acts of extension um, being like you're describing there using your pen or I don't know, some kind of an object that, you know, moves beyond your physical body so that you can yeah. causally interact at a location that you couldn't with your like biological body, so to mm. speak. Um, and that that in some sense, at least on, in, on some descriptions, is like sufficient for presence, even bodily presence at a certain location. And it does kind of get into a little bit like, I, I mean, this is a philosopher's question, but like a question like, what's your body? Yeah. <laughs> 
you know? And like, we think we know it's like, Oh, it's this hunk of flesh or whatever that I'm somehow like related to. Yeah. You can start asking some like, you know, kind of, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, probing questions like, well, like, like, what about your hair? Is, is your mm. hair, your body? Like if you get a haircut, have you lost some of your body? What about mm. your fingernails? You know, like, what have you lost your body when you clip your fingernails? Mm. Um, you know, those kinds of questions. What if you get a prosthetic device? And that's another kind of example I utilize in the literature as well. Um, uh, you know, a prosthetic device, say that I, you know, whatever, my, my arm has to be removed, what have you, and I get um, a prosthetic arm. Um, well, now my body seems to be extending beyond the confines of like the organic material. I've got inorganic material, but it's like causally connected to me in such a manner that I've now extended my body beyond the biology and into the artifactual world, you might say. And for some explications of the uh, uh, of extension of these kind of enabling a, a extension, they they'd want to say, yeah, that, that's sufficient for that object being your body, this causal connection. Yeah. So I'm not sure that um, I would say my my view with you, Chris, like uh, you know, depends or is necessary on a sort of complicated and maybe controversial theory mm -hmm. of the extension of human bodies. Yeah. But more so, I'm just trying to like say, well, you know. Maybe maybe there's some tools here. Maybe there's some resources here that yeah, it's a little bit weird, but like the whole point is trying to make sense of what Christ says. Yeah, and these things I think help us to make could help us to make sense of what Christ says. Yeah, it, it was really helpful for me, and and maybe this is the direction you don't take it, but in in you broadening over the conversation, broadening out the conversation, I can I can have some more concepts to think through. Well, maybe mm. this is like Christ is holding the bread out to me. Right. And it's like, this mm. is my body in the same way that this pen is poking because I'm more on, on the memorial side. Right. But sure. I'm thinking through as I'm in seminary here and, you know, could that be the similar thing? He's, he's poking me with the pen. Uh, he's, he's holding out his, his body to me. And, and maybe mm -hmm. I can wed that with a, a Calvinistic interpretation, which I, I want to affirm a little bit more. And so it's really cool thinking about these kind of things because you broaden my horizons to think through and it's not, it doesn't have to be a, a denominational or a, a, a political fight or anything like that. It's what does the Lord mean when he says that, you know, we have this yeah. phenomenon of scripture. So here's some tools to kind of think through, you know, what, what should we be thinking about with, yeah. with the extended mind? Uh, we got in some really fun conversations, but, uh, you know, I think of like myriological holism and mm -hmm. today, you know, a lot of people are, are appropriating Aristotelian categories and yeah, you know, once the arm becomes part of your, your body, it's part of the myriological whole. And that seems a little bit intuitive, but uh, one intuition that's kind of odd is when you hit someone with your car, it's like, yeah, you, you hit them with your car, you hit them. You can say that literally and it, and it makes yeah. sense. You hit them, mm -hmm. but it was your car that hit them, but yeah, but you were driving. And in that sense, it's an extension of your body or your mm -hmm. intentions, right? And your intentions matter whether you intended to or not. But then when it comes to someone sitting inside the car, now it's like, well, they're not inside your body. But it's like this weird, there's there's a little bit of bullet biting when you go with extended uh, models, which yeah. are fun too. <laughs> to, no, to there's... Yeah, I know there's certainly some bullet biting if one were to go that route. And so, and again, kind of the route that I was going with respect to the acts of extension is, is dependent upon causal connection. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah. long as you are causally connected with some object, some physical object, that's an extension of your body. Yeah. And okay, that's all well and good when you're talking about, you know, a prosthetic arm or a pen. It gets a little trickier when you start talking about your causal connection with your car 
or a 747 or an aircraft carrier or something yeah. like that. It's like, wait a minute, is this aircraft carrier my body? Because I have causally connected to the, you know, to the, what do you call that? Steering? It's not a steering wheel, right? Whatever the, I don't whatever know what it they're is. Nowadays. Whatever it is you use to, to, to steer they a those big wheels that the old time. They probably, they probably don't have that. They probably have some computer program that like drives it or whatever. Right. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm imagining like the Mayflower or something like that, that kind of a ship. Yeah. Um, at any rate, yeah, that gets a little bit, that gets a little bit tricky. I, I think one way to kind of um, potentially get a little more nuance in there is that there's, I think there's some distinctions to make with respect to the causal connection like in a particular context and for a particular purpose, um, that is um, uh, that that that's maybe a, a helpful way to kind of like get some kind of like uh, uh, I don't know clarity. Maybe is not quite the right word, but put some safeguards up on that sort of thing. So if you're like um, you know driving your car, there is a causal connection that you have made to like the car via the steering wheel and it's, and, and the, and the, you know, the, the wheels are turning in the engine cause your foot is pressing on the gas and, and yeah. what have you. So in the act of like propelling the car forward, given the, you know, enabling device of the vehicle with the engine and the gasoline and everything, that act would be a, uh, uh, an extension of your body in that sense. Mm. But like sitting in the, in the, in, in the car, um, doesn't seem as though you are as causally connected to, you know, the person sitting in the car. They're just, they're just riding alongside in it. So that causal connection that you have to that person seems weaker than the causal activity mm. that you're exerting on the steering wheel and the gas pedal and that sort of thing as you're, as you're making the car go enabled by the ways in which the car has been manufactured and the like. So that might help someone to kind of like avoid a little bit of like you're sitting in my body when you're yeah. like, you know, giving your buddy a ride or something like that. That's not bad. That's not bad at all. I like that. Yeah. It's like, so your body would be extended towards the action that you're actually causing without. So yeah, it, it would have to get kind of vague or fuzzy going backwards. Cause that's not really what you're causing, but I like what I like it. Yeah. That's really helpful actually. Yeah, I like that. So, um, Dr. Cardi, thanks, thanks so much for for all your time here, man. This has been fantastic. We learned a lot. Uh, people can can hear more from you through your own podcast, which you do. You co lead. Is that? I don't know how to explain that. Yeah, co host. I suppose is the way to put that. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, some of us as Ted's faculty, uh, myself, uh, Dr. Michelle Knight in Old Testament, Dr. Madison Pierce in New Testament, and Dr. Josh Chip in New Testament host a, a podcast called Forward, Forward, a TEDS uh, faculty podcast, where um, primarily we interview our TEDS faculties, uh, mm -hmm. faculty colleagues um, about work they're doing. Sometimes we try to like time it up with uh, like a book release that they have going on or anything. And it's been a great way for us to get to know our colleagues yeah. and also kind of a way for us to, you know, introduce them uh, to, to, to current students, to alumni, to future students as well and the like. And so, yeah, we usually release every other week. Um, so check us out You can go to forwardpodcast.com, uh, or, uh, we're on the tiu.edu website as well. Yeah. Yeah. So definitely go check that out. Um, also because of COVID craziness, there's been 
a lot of online courses and mixed courses, stuff like that. So I don't know what the future holds, but if you do get a chance and you um, are in a distance listening to this podcast, but want to hear more from Dr. Arcadi, come take his analytic theology course, take his intro to systematic theology courses, God of the gospel, all that stuff. You can do that uh, extended now. And so uh, you can extend yourself through the World Wide Web to hear more from Dr. Arcadi. You can locate yourself here in Illinois uh, via these intermediaries. Without having to be stuck here with the weather. Yeah, which is fantastic. (laughs) Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, thanks so much, Dr. Cardi. I'd love to have you on again to talk some more uh, theology, philosophy, all that good stuff. Um, My pleasure, Always good to chat with you. Open invitation there. Uh, This has been Parker's Pensies. Uh, All glory to God as always. We could talk about this more, and hopefully someday we will. But for now, that's going to have to do it.